When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Latin American History Podcast, episode 52, When Latins Fight, a conversation with Walter Milano. This is the second part of my interview with Walter. The first part was on coronavirus and the effect it's having on Latin America's economy. So if you haven't listened to that, I recommend going back and checking it out. Today we're back to the history. We're discussing his book, When Latins Fight, Why There's No United States of South America. The book provides an account of all the major wars that took place between states in post-independence South America. Doing this allows Walter to not just cover the stories of each conflict, but to pull out some of the common themes which run through them. In this episode, he explains how some of these wars came about, what their legacies are, and how the rivalries that they created affect the future prospects of the region. So, here it is. Well, thanks for joining us again, Walter, for coming back to talk about your book, When Latins Fight. Thanks, Max. I think this book is fascinating. It's, it's a really ambitious project to take on so many big conflicts and to draw, to, to draw together the common themes within them, which I, I, think, I think the book does really, really well. At the beginning, you, uh, you explained that Spanish America wasn't designed to be a unified place that the way it had been set up as an empire worked against uh, unification and encouraged conflicts almost. So I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on why that was the case. Um, the thing about Latin America and, and the Spanish, the Spanish were, were there to really look for precious metals. That was, that was their main intent, which was a very different um, intent from what the English were trying to do in North America, what they were trying to do is basically move pop, you know, troublesome populations out of England into other areas, into into colonies, uh, you know, the different Protestant sects or, or Catholics and that kind of thing. And it was kind of to reduce the amount of uh, political tension that was in England, especially following the uh, the civil wars. With the uh, with the Spanish. After Spain had, had been successful in unifying itself and purging the, um, the Moorish influence, especially the, the fall of Granada, what they wanted to do is to, to gain a similar standing 
in Europe to the other major European powers, i.e. especially France and, and, uh, and Britain. And so the key to power back there at the end of the, of the medieval age was trade with Asia. And that was something that had been locked up, especially by the Italian states and by the Portuguese. And what they wanted to do was find another way to do it. And that's where Christopher Columbus came in with his proposal, a proposal which had been you know, flatly rejected by many uh, different monarchies around Europe because they knew what the circumference of the planet had been. They had already known, known it for thousands of years. And they just saw that he would run out of you know, all of his resources, water and food, before he would, even would get there. Uh, the thing is that he ran into, into this landmass that nobody knew existed, which was the Americas, and they eventually found that the Americas had one, you know, uh, resource that they weren't even expecting to, to bring back from China, and that was, you know, gold and silver, especially silver. Silver was the main, you know, thing that they were after. It wasn't really gold, in fact... People have known for thousands of years that there's much more silver on the planet than gold. I think the ratio is 13 to 1. Um, but the thing is that the, the Chinese had used silver or were using silver as their medium of exchange. And so therefore they would gladly take all the silver and then give them in return what the Europeans wanted. You know, spices, uh, they wanted uh, um, they wanted porcelain, they wanted all the different, many, they wanted silk, all the different manufactured products that the Chinese were known for at the time. And so as the Spanish moved off the islands, as you detail very well, and then start going on to the mainland into Mexico, they find huge amounts of deposits of precious uh, metal. And then they start hearing tales of other locations as well. And if you look at it, the organization of the, of the colonies was really based on precious metal. Uh, in fact, Mexico is the first um, vice royalty, okay, vice royalty meaning that you are the direct representative of the royal, okay, so you're, you're the vice, like a vice president. Um, and so what they really cared about was, you know, the silver that was being produced, especially in the highlands and the northern highlands. Of, uh, of Mexico. The second vice royalty that's, that's established is after Pizarro finds the, uh, the Inca Empire down in Peru and finds huge treasure troves of, of silver down there, especially in what today is known as Bolivia and especially later on when they find uh, the, uh, the Mount of Potosí. So that's, that's the second organization that is done. And so, again, it's all done. The, the organization of these colonies is to make the silver industry work, okay? What, they, what I mean by that is they establish the ports to, you know, move the silver out. They establish the manpower, the, the, the so-called mita, you know, the form of, you know, uh, slavery of, of indigenous people in order to work these uh, mines, which had very low life expectancy, um, the third vice royalty that then is established on the Spanish side is in uh, is Nueva Granada, which today is Ecuador, Colombia, and Venezuela, because gold is this time it's gold that is discovered out in the northern parts of Colombia and in parts of Venezuela as well. In fact, if you notice that in the news, there's still a lot of talk about the uh, gold that Venezuela has at the central at the Bank of England. And, you know, whether they could get it back or not and that kind of stuff. Most of this gold was actually mined 
uh, early on, and maybe not necessarily in the colonial areas, but throughout time, because Venezuela actually sits on a on a on a big oil. I'm not I'm sorry on a big gold uh, deposit. It's been eclipsed because of the immense amount of oil that they have. But there's this huge complex in the southern part, in the Guyana's part, called CVG, that is there to uh, to mine the uh, the gold. And so the the um, you know the uh, royalty or the, the monarchy in Spain decided to establish a new vice royalty, Nueva Granada, in order to lead to the production of that of that gold. So they would bring in slaves, they would then build, you know, huge fortresses. The fortress in Cartagena was there to, you know, protect the gold from pirate attacks at a huge cost. It almost bankrupted the uh, the Spanish Empire in building the uh, the stronghold in, in Cartagena in order to, then to amass the gold, you know, uh, store it, and then get enough then to, to get the, uh, the, um, the gold ships, the, the armada that would then, then sail back to, uh, to Europe, back, sail, sail back to Seville during the, uh, during the sailing season. And so as a result, then there's areas of Latin America that are completely ignored. Before I go into that, the Brazilians did the same thing. Brazil was really largely organized in order to develop the gold, especially that you had in the kind of central south area, what today is called Minas Gerais, which means general mines. Uh, there's a town called, which back in the colonial days, it was called Vida Rica, rich city, uh, which is um, uh, which today is known as Oro Preto, black gold. And so this was what was really driving the whole you know, Portuguese empire to develop Brazil. In fact, the famous Bandaranches, which are the slave hunters, for lack of a better word, which the Brazilians kind of, you know, glorify, what they were were these bands of, of uh, explorers that would go into the hinterlands, really hunting down Guarani, uh, which were, you know, this, this indigenous tribe that today is like, a lot of it is in southern Brazil, a lot of them are in Paraguay, and some of them in northern Argentina, and then bring them back to work in these gold mines. And again, that's why, if you notice, the southern part of Brazil is the one that's kind of most organized. It's the one with the most states, because again, the colonial organization was based around that type of, of extraction of precious uh, resources. It was not colonization as in, the, uh, as in the British form in North America, which... <clears throat> had its own problems as well. It, it wasn't like an enlightened form of colonization, <clears throat> given the fact that, given the fact that these were they were bringing in immigrations of people to basically get them out of Europe, and so they, there wouldn't be trouble anymore for for the for the British crown. Then what they did is they ended up then displacing the population. It was genocide, uh, and so what they would do is as they would push in further and further in. They would just displace the indigenous populations, making them move further west, and in the process also killing them off with disease and with war and, and, and that kind of thing as well. So it was different forms of subjugation. Uh, but with the, with the Spanish, they needed to preserve the local population. They didn't want to kill off the lo local population because the local population was the labor force. It was the manpower that was needed to work these mines, which were very risky you know, operations. A lot of them were underground. A lot of them were under the worst type of conditions. Mining today in the 21st century is a dark and dangerous business. Imagine what it was in the 16th century or the 17th century. 
the, uh, the life expectancy of a miner was counted sometimes in weeks or months, and that's why they were always in the constant lookout for more workers. And so as a result, then, areas of Latin America are completely ignored, areas that did not have any natural resource or the natural resources which the Spanish were looking for, which was precious metals. And those are, for example, Chile. Chile was just kind of backwater. The biggest backwater was Argentina, what we today call Argentina. Um, and it really just came into being more and more as a backwater route to bring in contraband to the miners of, of, of Alto Peru or the miners of Potosí. You also point out in the book that most of the wars you cover, and you cover pretty much all, all of them, the main ones, were instigated in part by foreign interests. Sometimes there was a mercenary presence of foreigners, but often it was commercial interests from outside helping um, lead the Latin American countries on the path towards war with each other. Um, I was just wondering if you thought that some of the conflicts could have been resolved by other means if it wasn't for this outside influence. Ooh, that's a that's a good question. Um, you know, the thing that when, when you sit down and you think about it, both North America and South America are born out of the Industrial Revolution. It's the Industrial Revolution that really leads to the creation of the Americas as an independent political unit. Industrial Revolution, as you know, starts in the early 1700s with the advent of the first steam engine. And then later on in the 1700s, they start applying the technology to different kind of things like, you know, uh, weaving and looms and, and, and crushing uh, things and, and, and movement. And so as that, as the Industrial Revolution begins to take off, the need for the inputs for the, these industries begins to grow. In other words, the need for commodities begins to grow, and commodities in order to mass, you know, produce for for the for the populations, because now you want to take care of these populations. You can sell, you know, processed food to, to these populations. Um, you need, for example, cotton in order to put it into these looms and, and weavers and that kind of stuff. You need oil to lubricate uh, the uh, the machinery. You need rubber to insulate. The, the, the discovery of, of electricity and the wires that are coming out, you need rubber to insulate because otherwise they just short out or kill the people who are handling uh, this stuff. Uh, you, need, uh, you need saltpeter, you need nitrates in order to basically uh, run the, the, the gunpowder that is now massively needed on this, you know, industrial war machines that are being created. I mean, World War One is really the civil war in the United States and, and also, you know, other European conflicts show the industrial impact on warfare that you can now have, you know, you know, cannons and you can have mass-produced, you know, uh, armament and, and that kind of thing. And Latin America at that time is kind of the sole source of a lot of this, of, of these uh, commodities. And they're placed, they happen to be located, many of them, in kind of intersection areas. And that's the thing is that Latin America, in the case of North America, North America separated as a unit and kind of came up with an agreement to keep the colonies together. In the case of South America, given the fact that the distances were so much larger, in, in North America, you know, the distance probably from one end of the, uh, of the colony, of the English colonies, 
from one end to the most extreme end must have been maybe 400 miles. In the case of, of Latin America, you're talking about thousands and thousands of miles and much of it through incredibly, you know, you know, adverse type of terrain, you know, jungles, very thick jungles or very, very dense mountains or, or incredibly, you know, dry deserts. And so the intercommunication was very, very difficult. And so as a result, you know, the, the boundaries were not very well defined. And some of this stuff, some of these commodities are end up being found in these kind of gray areas. In fact, when, when, the, when, when the colonization, when the independence movements start happening, and I, I saw this in, in, uh, in the case of, of Argentina, when they were looking at the maps, they were trying to identify which, par- which territories belong to which parish. And in fact, that's how they start to, uh, to do the division. Because like, for example, Argentina is, was, was, kind of, was part of the vice royalty of Peru. Now, that creates all sorts of problems. And, and as in, in the, uh, in the 17, late 1700s, as more and more contraband is going up the River Plate uh, and going up to the Paraná, then what the, what the uh, and, and there's, there's a change in monarchy in, uh, in Spain, they decide to just claw away Argentina, make it its own vice royalty. That way you have royal control in Buenos Aires and get rid of all the contrabandists and at least make the contrabandists official government agents. But then they were trying to figure out, okay, where do we draw the line? Okay, okay, sometimes it's easy to do because it's, you know, you have rivers and stuff like that. Other times it was just on the base of, of parishes. Okay, which parish is which, which is where. And then you have, you know, territories such as Bolivia, what we call Bolivia, which in the colonial days were called Alto Peru. It switches back and forth between belonging to Peru, the vice royalty of Peru, or belonging to the, uh, the vice royalty of, um, of Rio de la Plata, which today is what we call Argentina. And so it was very much no man lands. These were very underpopulated type of areas, large indigenous populations. And, but then when they all of a sudden become important because they hold deposits of, again, nitrates or rubber or oil or stuff like that, and then you have commercial interests especially coming in out of Europe, but also coming out of the United States, that they then go in and begin to buy off politicians, influence governments, and basically go to war. I found it really interesting that some of the some countries in South America were basically created simply to be buffer states between the larger, more powerful ones next door. Uh, I was wondering if you could outline how that came about, that process of creating buffer states, and whether it hampered the um, viability of those countries going forward from there. You know, one of the things that, as, as a Latin American student that I've always been intrigued by is the Latin American map, because it kind of doesn't make any sense. You know, when you look at the Latin American map, it's this hodgepodge of, of countries, some of them have access to to uh, coastlines. You know, some some of them don't. Uh, some of them are in really hostile type of territory. It isn't really based on tribes, or or, or is it based on even on, on countries of colonization? Um, it just is. It's a very strange map. With you know, sometimes it's natural boundaries. Sometimes there's even no natural ba- boundaries that are there. And as I started to read uh, Latin American history, I realized that, again, 
Latin America and the United States both are born out of the Industrial Revolution. So we're talking about you know early 1800s. And one of the big diplomatic innovations of, if you want to call it the Napoleonic Age, was the creation of the buffer state. When you know when when Napoleon then expands out expands out and and uh, he he starts moving into these other countries at the end what what the uh, diplomatic re, you know core decided to do was kind of create these buffer states these spaces of population that would separate you know countries so for example that's how you start getting Luxembourg you start getting Belgium. Uh, for, I know I'm going to annoy some people when, you, when I say this, but probably how you start getting Switzerland and you start creating these countries that are going to separate the big powers of Europe. And France is definitely one of the big powers. England is separated by, by, by the English Channel. But it was clear that at some point in time, Germany was going to, have, was going to coalesce into a, a major state. You still have, Italy didn't exist, but you knew that that was going to coalesce at one point in time. They also had their own natural buffer, which is the Alps. Well, as I mentioned before, the big kind of natural powers or the, the legacies, political legacies that you had of Latin America was the vice royalties. And there were four major vice royalties in, uh, in Latin America. One of them was uh, Peru, okay, where it had enormous amount of of resources all around Lima, uh, and there you had forts, you had population, you had infrastructure, okay? The second one is uh, Nueva Granada, uh, which is to what today is Ecuador, Colombia, and Venezuela. The third one is, uh, is uh, Rio de la Plata, which is Argentina, which didn't have a lot of natural resources that they cared about at that moment in time. Okay, later on they would in the, in the form of agriculture, but that wasn't a major export in the, in, in the early 1800s. And then the fourth one, for the Spanish crown, it was, uh, it, it was Mexico. Um, and then the fifth one, which is the, the, uh, the Portuguese one, which is Brazil. And the thing is that when, as in, in the early days of independence, as you're getting Bolivar and the different generals, you start seeing that there's rivalries, you know, between these uh, these vice royalties. They call them new names, but there's vice there's there is enormous amounts of rivalries, and there's differences that have developed just by the way the colonizations have been, you know, organized. You know, like for example, Colombia, uh, which is kind of the heart of the of Nueva Granada. There, the, the the capital is Bogota. It's a very conservative society because it's so far remote. I mean, it would take months to go from the coast, walking up the mountains to, to get up to uh, Bogota. So you had a very, very conservative, uh, layered type of, of society, very legalistic type of society. On the other hand, you had, uh, you had vice royalties in cities like, you know, Buenos Aires, you know, in Rio de la Plata, which was very cosmopolitan because it's a port, you know, they call it the entry port. Uh, so you had, you know, you had uh, all sorts of Europeans, French, British, Scots, uh, all sorts of stuff. So they have a completely different mindset as far as trade goes, as far as uh, relations with, with, the, uh, with the rest of the world. You have then the Peruvian part, which you have the big indigenous population. So there is a very caste-driven society of you know, Europeans or people of European birth you know, controlling all the levers of power and making sure that, they're, that they keep the indigenous populations under control. And this creates rivalry 
between, uh, between them. And so as a result, they start to develop conflicts, border conflicts. And again, the, the borders between these new countries were not very well defined. And the first one who takes advantage of this is Britain, because Britain had saw that there was enormous amount of trade opportunities, especially in the Rio de la Plata region. They, they saw that there was opportunities for, for the export of cotton, for the export of leather, all sorts of beef was starting to, to, to become a thing, and they wanted access to, to the river plate. Now, the problem is that if Uruguay is part of Argentina, okay, then the river plate become, is a national river. Okay? You can't just barge into a national river. But if Uruguay is carved away as an independent state, and if you take a look at the map of Uruguay, and I urge you to do it, you'll see it's virtually an island. It's, it's surrounded by water on three parts. It's surrounded by the Atlantic on, on, the, uh, on the eastern part. It's, it's, and you have the river plate on the southern part, and you have the Uruguay River on the western part. If Uruguay then becomes an independent country, then the waterway, the, uh, the, the, the river plate waterway, becomes an international waterway. And all of a sudden, countries have got access into that. And so there was this big you know, to-do. There would have been a conflict already between Argentina and, and, and Brazil, which I cover in the first chapter called the, the Platine and Cisplatine uh, uh, conflict. The reason why it's called Platine is because Argentina was back then called Rio de la Plata, the, uh, and so plata becomes platine, and cisplatine it means crossing. Cis in, in Latin means crossing, so crossing the river plate. So the, the, there have been these conflicts where the, the imperial forces of the Portuguese crown had interceded in some of the civil wars, the powers for the struggles that were taking place inside of Argentina to try to get control or have a bigger dominance as to what was going on there. The British then intercede and say, okay, really what we need to do is have a buffer state between you two countries because the two of you are, are always going to be at each other's throats. Um, and so what we propose is that Uruguay doesn't belong to either one of you. It becomes just a neutral state and then we're going to put that. But also in the process, then because of the waterways that surround Uruguay, then Uruguay, then the river plate also all of a sudden becomes an international waterway, given full navigation access to any country that wants to use it. And just like that, we started seeing that then repeated with Paraguay, again, keeping Brazil and Argentina away from each other. There was the, uh, the War of the Triple Lines, which is this devastating war for Paraguay, where we saw it lose 40% of its population, about 60%, uh, I mean, 40% uh, of its territory, about 60% of its population, just destroyed what at that time was one of the more advanced countries in Latin America. And at one point in time, the Brazilians proposed, after the war, they proposed to the Argentine government, how about we just make it go away? We just disappear it. And we just, you know, divide the, uh, the, the territory between the two of us. And Argentina said, no, we'd rather not because we'd rather have as little contact with you, Brazil, as possible. Because we just have natural rivalry between the two of us. And we would rather have the, the, uh, the separation of, of distance. And in the end, the same thing happens with, uh, with Bolivia, which in the colonial days was called Alto, Alto Peru. Again, it was it was a territory that at one point in time had been uh, owned by the, uh, the 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 Peruvian vice royalty. At another time, it had been owned by the uh, by the uh, Rio Plata 
vice royalty. <clears throat> Those were two, again, very powerful uh, uh, vice royalties in Latin America, Peru and Buenos Aires. And in fact, the initial part of the, of the war of independence for Argentina is fought in Alto Peru. Those were some of the early skirmishes because of Potosí, of the, of the huge you know, silver that existed there. And so whoever owned Potosí would be the kingmaker of South America. And so the, the kind of the, the final solution there, and it's, I'm simplifying a lot over there, uh, is the creation of an independent country called Bolivia, which really pissed off Simon Bolivar to no end when he heard about this. He didn't really want this at all. But then kind of when you saw the geopolitics of it and everything, he said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll go along with it. Plus they wined and dined him and made sure that he had a very good time by the time he got to La Paz to try to sort things out. And the last one is Ecuador. And again, Nueva Granada, huge virus royalty, a lot of power. Uh, you have uh, Peru, another very powerful vice royalty, you know, rivals, uh, natural rivals between them. Why not just kind of keep them separate by creating Ecuador and creating a buffer state between them? I know that you travel a lot in Latin America for work and, and you obviously speak to a lot of people in a lot of different countries over there. So I was wondering if besides those borders as they exist today on the map, do you think that these conflicts have had a strong legacy on the countries of South America? Do you think that they've had strong effects on the political aims of each country and also on the mindsets of the individuals? It's had a huge, huge, huge impact. Um, it is very much deep into, into the cultural you know, fabric it is, I would say, it goes into the DNA. These conflicts really mark how the countries see each other, and I think it's been very much to the detriment of the region. Because from when you look from outside of, of Latin America, you see a very homogeneous region. You see a, a region that was colonized by basically the same colonizing power, speaks the same language with the exception of Brazil, um, is very heavily Catholic. You're like, wow, you know, this, this, this is a region that is just as networked together as, as it possibly could be until you go to those countries. And, you know, they just, they, they, they see themselves fully as who they are, as their own nationality, and everybody else is almost like an enemy. The, the amount of just deep-seated hatred and I can just use the word hatred that Bolivia and Peru has towards Chileans and uh, the uh, denigration that Chileans feel towards Peruvians and, and, uh, and Bolivians just cannot be explained. You see it at every single you know, level. Uh, you see it in government spending. You know, Chile spends probably the most or the second most of any Latin American country on defense as its percentage of GDP because it feels so threatened. Argentines have gone to have almost gone to war as you know recently as the uh, as the nineteen eighties, late nineteen seventies against Chile. And so Chile feels like it is completely surrounded by enemies. And so therefore it has cutting edge and say again, cutting edge technology when it comes to armament. It has F eighteen airplanes, it buy, it buys the, the most latest 
submarines from uh, from Germany. You know, uh, most of its its uh, its naval ships are made in England. It spends enormously on defense. The same thing goes with Peru. Peru, you know, but gets most of its equipment from uh, from from uh, from Russia, or has gotten a lot of of its equipment from Russia. But also, you know, spends enormous amounts of defense. The rivalry that you see between Argentina and Brazil is not limited to the to the football pitch. You know, there is this deep seated hatred between the two countries. Even though you know Brazilians love to vacation in Buenos Aires and. And Argentines love to go to the beaches of, of Bucios and, and, and Rio de Janeiro. They still, there is enormous amounts of animosities. The animosity that, you know, Colombians feel towards Venezuelans and Ecuadorians cannot be understated. And so this is a lot of it, the legacy. And the reason why I started to focus on these wars, you know, like you said, I travel a lot throughout, throughout the region, is because I would arrive in these airports and I would be on my way to my hotel and I would see these monuments and they were military monuments and I had no idea what they were referring to. And I started then, you know, kind of looking into I had never heard of the War of the Triple Alliance or I had never heard of the War of the of the Pacific. Um, I had never heard about, you know, the rubber wars. Uh, and then when I started then asking people in meetings and stuff like that, I saw the passion that they have, and, and Chileans, especially Chileans, Chileans are incredibly proud people, and they're incredibly proud of their military triumphs that they've had in the War of the Pacific, in the War, War of the Confederation, even though you know some horrible things happened, but if, if you read the book and you take a look at the book, they're fascinating wars. They're, they're, they're wars that took place in the most hostile type of environments, in 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 the in the in snow covered passes, it took place in um, in the middle of deserts, deserts where there was no form of navigation, where armies would march around in circles. Where at one point in time, the Bolivian army ran out of water, and then they started drinking their supply of liquor because they would feed their soldiers, you know, shots of liquor before battle. But then the the the, the army got completely drunk, and then started basically dying off of dehydration in the middle of the Atacama Desert. I mean, these are incredibly, you know, interesting type of conflicts. River uh, battles on the Paraná River between, you know, the Paraguayan and the Brazilian navies. It is really interesting. And then when you ask, because the, the interesting thing about the Latin American is that he knows or she knows enormous amounts of history of their own country, but they don't know very much about the history about the other country. So, you know, a, a Peruvian, I'm sorry, a Peruvian, sure, will know all sorts of, of the stories of <clears throat> the, uh, the war with Chile and, and the uh, siege of Lima. And in fact, they have national dishes, dishes that you can go to any uh, Peruvian restaurant and you'll see that, for example, if you go to a Peruvian restaurant, you'll see a dish called calza. It's called la calza, which means the cause. I was in, in Switzerland a couple of months ago and I, I saw it in, in, uh, on, on the menu in, in Geneva. And I was asking with a bunch of people, I said, you know where that comes from? Because it's a, it's, a, <clears throat> it's a plate made of basic food, breadcrumbs and stuff. <clears throat> and that's, uh, they go, no. I go, well, that's when, when Lima was being sieged and they had ran out of food. And that was the only dish that could be made. It was made out of you know, stale breadcrumbs and this kind of like stew type of uh, a thing. So it's very much embedded deep into, uh, into the psychology. So the Peruvians are going to know enormous amounts of, of their own history. But you ask them 
What about the War of the Triple Alliance, you know, where Argentina, Uruguay, and Brazil ganged up on, on, uh, on Paraguay? They don't know anything about it. They don't even know it, it, it existed. So that was another motivation to, to, for, for my book. But the good thing was that I had the benefit of traveling to all of these countries and meeting and, and seeing these people. And, and as a result, they pointed me to historians. I mean, the Argentines are very proud of their own conflicts. And like the last conflict I, I have there is the, uh, is the Falklands War, the, uh, the Malvinas, as they're called in Argentina. And hearing it from the Argentine perspective, because, you know, from, from the European perspective, from the British perspective, it's like we came, we all we conquered, you know, we, 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 we kicked their butt. When you look at it, at, at you know how how close in, in the book, I say basically by a puff of wind, you know the British were able to win, or they almost lost the war. It's really incredible how this basically ragtag air force of Argentine pilots flying flying airplanes with, which are thirty years old were able to inflict the biggest naval loss on Britain that it had since World War One. And so it really is quite interesting and fascinating. And again, being able to talk to, you know, in some cases, veterans or on historians or people that are just motivated. I've been in, I've been in many lunches in, in, uh, in, the, in the most prestigious banks in Santiago and listened to guys who are basically armchair historians and have been given books upon books about, you know, about these conflicts, about the Chilean conflicts, and Chile had a couple of conflicts. The most notable one was the War of the Pacific. Yeah, I have to say, that was very interesting for me, being British, reading about the Malvinas, the Falklands, because um, it was before my time, but you just don't hear about, you don't hear much about the war itself. It's all about how Britain, either how Britain was great and stood up for itself, or the alternative narrative is that it was... Thatcher trying to dis, you know, distract people from all the damage she was doing. But both both narratives, just the the Argentinian side is kind of considered like a prop. Um, no one really considers that they may have actually come out on top. So um, that was I found that personally very very interesting to read. My last question is is about kind of about the future. Obviously, Bolivar's dream was to unite. Spanish America, um, and in light of all these conflicts, that's not going to happen. However, there are quite a lot of organizations which unite the states, like Mercosur. Um, I think Alba's another one for the more socialist countries. So I was just wondering, do you see closer union between the Latin American countries as realistic? And if so, do you think it's the way to go? Do you think it, it could be good for the region as a whole, in the future. Well, I, I, I thank you for the question because I think that's that is a huge important question. I, I had three objectives when I when I wrote this book. One of them was to kind of have one central telling of the uh, of the Latin American conflicts. Which I haven't seen that. Okay, that when, in researching for this book, and I spent a lot of time researching. I went up to Yale Library and uh, their whole network of libraries and, and really spent a lot of time. And there's an enormous amount of research on each individual war, even the wars of the Confederation, the Cisplatine, Platine Wars, you know, obviously in some of them more in Spanish or Portuguese than there is in, in English. Uh, the War of the, uh, of, of the uh, Triple Alliance, there's a good amount of, uh, of work on that. Um, the, um, the Chaco War, you know, that, that was given the fact that that was already in the 1900s. 
There was there's a there's a lot of uh, research on that. So one of them was to provide a central location where you could uh, you could see all the major conflicts that that affected the region. The second objective of the book was to kind of try to explain the Latin American map. Why does it look like that? You know, why do you have you know a couple of large countries surrounded by a bunch of really small countries and countries that again don't make much sense because they don't have access to the ocean. They're kind of like there in, in the middle of, of of nowhere, and yet they kind of create these like little belts around countries as well. Why does it exist? Um, and then the third objective was, what is the future of Latin America? And here I'm more on shaky ground, okay, or on thin ice, because as you said, the thing is that most of the attempts to kind of bring Latin America together have really been done for political reasons, okay? Bolivar tried to do it initially, and he found that, again, the, the distances in uh, uh, the, the, the distances and also the, the terrain that needed to be crossed, the communication that was there just didn't really lend for uh, uh, integration of, of these colonies. And, you know, again, one of the problems with, uh, with, with the original organization that it was done by the Spanish was that all of the communication with Europe was done through sea. There was very little, you know, in, you know uh, land type of communication. And even if you take a look at countries with very long borders, like Argentina and Chile, the official number of crossings is limited. And, and for those of you that you know want to do an interesting trip, I you know really strongly encourage to do a trip where you cross back and forth between Chile and Argentina. There's some fantastic crossings, and not just between you know the northern parts, you know that that connect Mendoza with uh, with Santiago. Though it's kind of the most famous ones, but down in Patagonia, there's some fantastic crossings where you go by, you know, volcanoes and and uh, just beautiful uh, uh, geography. Um, and so, the thing is that uh, you know this this objective to kind of bring the the region together was, didn't really work out for for Bolivar. He found that there were also you know big differences in culture. Then it's you know resurrected a couple of times again, most recently by Chavez to try to create a more socialist type of union, which of course was dead on arrival, especially in regards to to, to the United States, uh, which is Alba. Mercosur was more of a it, it really was born out of communication between the auto industries in, in Argentina and Brazil, and to provide you know greater economies of scale. To, to, to create a, uh, a, a customs union between the two countries, which, by the way, that's how NAFTA, or the North American Free Trade uh, Agreement, is born. It's born out of the automobile industry. It's born out of the automobile in the United, uh, industry in the United States that wants to take advantage of the auto production that they have in Canada and the ability to expand auto production into, into Mexico. And so what they want to do is they, they lobby Washington heavily to have just one unified trade treaty that they can then apply the same rules for their trade with Canada and their trade with, uh, with Mexico. And that's what Mercosur is. They also didn't bring in Paraguay and, and Uruguay, but it was kind of more like afterthoughts to give it kind of more of a, of a regional type of flavor. But it was really, you know, what something in operation called Auto Latina which was the big driver between the uh, between the, for the creation of, of Mercosur, and so therefore it doesn't really expand out any further. Under the Kirchners, they try to uh, bring in Venezuela, who then becomes comes in as an observer, but then it starts getting more politicized. 
But the thing is that I think that the future of Latin America as a viable part of the global economy has to become as some kind of unification. And it's the lesson that we got out of Europe, which is kind of not the current lesson, but the reason why the European Union came together is because the European countries, while they're wealthy in their own stead, okay, meaning, you know, you have countries like Holland and you have countries like Luxembourg, which on a per capita basis are very wealthy, when you put them against Behemoths, when you put them against monsters such as China, such as the United States, just don't register, okay? You can't, you know, when, 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 when two countries sit down and negotiate trade, it's basically, you know, how many widgets am I going to buy from you and how much widgets are you going to buy from me, okay? So when, when the Chinese and, and, the, and the Americans sit down and they talk about trade, it's like how many hundreds of billions of dollars in, you know, uh, auto equipment are you going to buy from me? How many hundreds of billions of dollars in um, in computers you can buy from me. And then you get, you're, you're kind of talking among equals and then you can have some give and take and there's, there's room for negotiation. When a monster like the United States sits down and talks to, you know, Belgium or even England, and that's what Obama told, you know, told London when they were talking about Brexit. They, they, Obama said, President Obama said, if you leave out of the European Union, you are not going to be as relevant to us because you you're, you're no longer have the scale and scope. So what Europe decided to do was to come together as a trade block, you know, also with other types of aims. You know, there's more economic integration, there was more immigration, all this kind of stuff. Uh, they, they come together and therefore become a meaningful negotiating block against these major powers, i.e., the rising, you know, global powers, because it was clear what was happening was that the United States was this huge, you know, uh, uh, power, economic powerhouse, and China was going to be the next economic powerhouse. And if Europe wanted to become, wanted to remain relevant within that kind of condition or environment, it needed to come together because now it could sit there and say to the, the Americans, hey, hey, by the way, I've got, you know, 350 million population. I've got a GDP of $16 trillion, okay? Okay, let's talk, okay? Let's talk. And now the Americans would listen. It wouldn't be like pushing around, you know, the Italians or pushing around the, uh, the Spanish or anything like that. And it worked. And I think that's why the European Union is going to survive, even though there's a lot of rivalries between members of the Union and there's a lot of political issues involved. It has to survive for economic purposes. That's the thing with Latin America. Latin America, and I got into, this, uh, into a huge conflict and fight with, uh, with the Spanish um, economist in, in, uh, in Spain a couple of years ago. And the thing is that Latin America, as I mentioned before, its area of comparative advantage is commodities. It has a lot of commodities, it has a lot of natural resources for the size of population that it has. Latin American populations are relatively small, very concentrated in a few cities, but they're very small. Like I've mentioned before, Argentina is half the size of the continental United States with only 15% of the population. So you have enormous amounts of wheat that's left over, beef that's left over, oil that's left over, all this kind of stuff that you don't need it, and so therefore you can export it to the, to the, to the rest of the world. Now the thing is that the rest of the world wants to buy Latin American commodities unprocessed. They want to buy the raw commodities. They don't want to buy the processed commodities because the processed commodity is where the money is. 
And you've probably seen the uh, newspaper articles where they'll show a glass, you know, uh, a cup of Starbucks coffee, and they'll have, you know, one out of one dollar or 100 percent of the price of a Starbucks coffee. You know what goes to where, you know, and they'll have, you know, marketing gets 20 percent, and the and the owner of the retail gets another 25 percent, and then you get down to the coffee bean grower, and he gets like three percent. All of the value added is when the processing starts. You know, when 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 you, for example, soybeans. And this is where I got into the argument with, uh, with, with the Spanish economist. You know, soybeans, unprocessed, unprocessed soybeans into China go in with zero tariff. The, the Chinese will buy Argentine soybeans or Brazilian soybeans free of tariff all day long. But when you process it and processing soybeans, all you do is you dry the soybean and you mill it. What do I mean by mill it is you put it between two stones and you grind it into a powder. That then has a 30% tariff on it. Now, you're going to say, what is the difference? The difference in price between milled soybeans and, and raw soybeans is multiple times. Okay? There's a huge markup between the process and the unprocessed. And you can go down the list. You can, you can see, for example, coffee, unprocessed coffee. Most of the coffee that comes out of South America is unprocessed. All the process is, is toasting the, 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 the coffee. All you do is you put it into a drum and you put a fire underneath it and you roll the drum and you toast the coffee. That's why when you go into so many different uh, ports, especially in the United States, I, well, because I know it very well, what you're going to see is the old plants that are left over. You know, Domino Sugar, you'll see Maxwell Coffee, and they kind of adorn the waterfront. But that's where the factories were, where they, where they processed the commodities that they got from Latin America. If you go, for example, to the Caribbean islands, you're going to see there's a bunch of refineries all throughout the Caribbean. You know, St. Martin has got, uh, uh, has got refineries. Cayman's got, I think Cayman, but there's, there's refineries located all throughout the, uh, the, the Caribbean basin. The Caribbean basin doesn't produce any oil. All the oil came out of Venezuela. But nobody want, none of the major oil companies wanted to put their refineries inside of Venezuela because they were afraid that they would then be nationalized. So therefore, they put them on islands which were under the national control. So St. Martin's was under, half of it was under Dutch control, or the Netherlands control. Shell was a, uh, was, was a Dutch company. So therefore, the raw oil that they bought from Venezuela, they then processed it in, uh, in St. Martin. <coughs> and the thing is that when it came time to do the negotiation, and so let me get to, to the argument. So what this economist says is he says, well, you know, maybe it's just that the Latin Americans don't have the technology to process their commodities. And I'm like, how much commodity, how much technology do you need to toast coffee or to grind sugar or to mill soybeans? I mean, it is the most basic technology in the world. The difference is that there's a lot more value added. And so the developed world, the West, wanted to keep the value added for themselves. I mean, it makes sense. You know, you can pay workers more money. You know, you, you can employ a bigger part of, of the population, et cetera, et cetera. The reason why Latin America has to take that, and I'll give you another example. Sorry. Uh, I was, I was in, in Switzerland once checking out of, uh, of the Swiss hotel in, uh, in Zurich. And uh, the girl at the reception very graciously says to me, uh, are you going home? I said, yep, I'm on, on the next flight. She goes, okay, well, she goes, are you, make sure you take, you know, a box of our Swiss chocolate because we make the best chocolate in the world. I said, do you really? You go, yes, we do. I go, by the way, do you, where do you get your cocoa from? Where, can you show me where the cocoa plants are? And they were like, huh, what are you talking about, cocoa? 
it's 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 that way, you know. But have you ever heard of Latin American chocolate? Actually, if you go to Ecuador and you go to Venezuela, there's some very good brands of 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 uh, of, of domestically made uh, chocolate, but they don't really sell outside outside of uh, of the regions or outside of the airport, really. Um, and so the only way Latin America can get any kind of meaningful, you know, reaction from these major, you know, powers, i.e. Europe, the European Union, the United States, and, and the Chinese, is if they come together like the European Union did and negotiate in block, saying, look, you know, you want our soybeans? Great, you know, we're going to sell you processed soybeans, but now... Given the fact that when we unify ourselves, okay, when we come together as a single bloc, now we're talking about populations that rival the United States, that rival Europe, that are almost the same type of GDP. GDP is, doesn't get to 16, 17 trillion, but you're talking about, about GDPs that are talking about $10 trillion. You're talking about imports of cars that are in the millions, not in the thousands, like when Argentina sits or Colombia sits to negotiate cars. And then, then you can get a different kind of situation. And I think this is something that the West or that the rest of the world is scared of. And so, therefore, they will happily keep Latin America divided as much as possible. In fact, I had read once a long time ago that one of the you know, nightmare scenarios for the, for, for, the, uh, for the U.S. military is the possible integration of Africa into a cohesive economic bloc for that same reason, because all of a sudden... Their negotiating clout changes completely. It's one thing p pushing around the Congo. It's another issue pushing around, I don't know what it is, 27 different countries with a population in the, uh, in, in the billions. And so I think that this is what is eventually going to happen. Unfortunately, the politics gets in the way. The rivalries get in the way. The legacies of, yes, I still remember, you know, my great-grandfather fought in, in the War of the Pacific or my great grand, you know, we had land, and I've heard this because I've heard it from 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 friends of mine. My, I had friends. I, I had, you know, my family had territories that were in Peru, but today we've lost them because they're in Chile, or you know, I, I you know, all sorts of, of stories like that, and they're very much kept alive. And until Latin America learns to overcome them, then it's not going to get the economic benefits that's going to come with economic integration. Well, that's fascinating. Thanks, um, thanks again for coming on the podcast. The book's called yeah. When Latins Fight, Why There's No United States of South America. And am I right in saying you can find it on Amazon? Yes, you can. You can find it in, uh, in written form, a hard book uh, in Spanish and in English. Or you can get it on Kindle, which is uh, available in Portuguese, English and Spanish as well. Excellent. Thanks again. Thank you, Max. It's been fun. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America. And that's spelt M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at historyoflatinamericapodcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at HistoryLatinAM. And if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, 
If you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T photo. Thanks for listening. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.